4: If you're the president of the United States, you can declassify just by saying um, it's declassified, even by thinking about it, because you're sending it to Mar-a-Lago or to wherever you're sending it. And there doesn't have to be a process. There can be a process, but there doesn't have to be.
3: Yeah, that's what he told Fox. But new reporting tonight indicates prosecutors have in their possession tape of Trump after he left the White House acknowledging that he was holding on to highly sensitive material which he did not in fact declassify also tonight the latest on the debt ceiling bill which comes up for a critical house vote just a short time from now the great lawrence o'donnell joins me to discuss and maryland governor Wes moore will be here he and other democratic governors are enacting bold progressive policies that help people instead of hurting them imagine that in sharp contrast to the republicans But we begin tonight with new reporting on the special counsel's investigation into Donald Trump's handling of classified documents that seem to undercut Trump's longstanding defense in the matter.
4: Just so you understand, I had every right to do it. I didn't make a secret of it. You know, the boxes were stationed outside of the White House. People were taking pictures of the GSA of the various I people. Sub- I took the documents I'm allowed to. And by the way, they become automatically declassified when I took them.
3: Yeah, no. First, let let me be clear. Classified documents don't just automatically become declassified because, you know, a president takes them to his vacation home once he leaves office. And now it appears there is further evidence showing that even Trump knew that to be the case. Multiple sources tell CNN that federal prosecutors have obtained an audio recording of a meeting held in the summer of 2021 where Trump talks about a classified document he held onto about a potential attack on Iran. CNN reports that the recording indicates Trump understood he retained classified material after leaving the White House, according to multiple sources familiar with the investigation. On the recording, Trump's comments suggest he would like to share the information, but he's aware of limitations on his ability post-presidency to declassify records, two of the sources said. That meeting, held at Trump's New Jersey Golf Club, was with two people working on an autobiography of Trump's former chief of staff, Mark Meadows. Those two people did not have security clearances that would have allowed them access to classified information. Sources tell CNN that special counsel Jack Smith is focusing on that meeting and described the recording as an important piece of evidence in a possible case against Trump. Joining me now is Glenn Kirshner, former federal prosecutor and MSNBC legal analyst. Hugo Lowell, political investigations reporter for The Guardian. And David K. Johnston, who has reported on Trump for decades and is the author of The Big Cheat, How Donald Trump Fleeced America and Enriched Himself and His Family. I'm going to go to you first,
5: Hugo, to tell me um, the latest of what you know about this reporting. Yeah, look, we confirmed this shortly after the CNN report that in July 2021, Trump sits down for a meeting with ghostwriters of Mark Meadows' memoir and Margot Martin, this press aide. Trump has all of these conversations recorded because he doesn't trust the journalists or the other people on the other side of the table. Okay. But this is what seems to have bitten him in this instance. Because,
3: Just to be clear, yeah. this is at Bedminster. This is not at Mar-a-Lago.
5: Months, in the summer months... Trump goes from Mar-a-Lago to Bedminster. He okay. typically spends the summer in Bedminster. Right, and Bedminster is interesting because that was also where uh, Tim Parlatore, the recently departed Trump lawyer, suggested. You know, he, they didn't want to do a search of Bedminster because they were worried right about what they might find. Mm-hmm. But this conversation in particular is significant because, from what we understand it, Trump was talking about retaining a secret-level document. Secret-level documents are the kinds of things that the Justice Department prefers to charge in espionage cases. Top secret, it's very difficult to get clearance from the intelligence community to get those declassified mm-hmm. for an indictment and for trial. Confidential documents might not be as compelling to a grand jury. A secret document, that's exactly where you want to be.
3: So it's in the middle between the top level of secrecy and the sort of mundane level of secrecy. So that is more appealing. How long has Jack
5: Smith had this? So we understand he has had this about several months from around mid-March. <coughs> the way it came into the special counsel's possession, we don't know. But mm-hmm. we know that Margot Martin testified to the grand jury in March. And we also know that she had her laptop and devices imaged uh, by prosecutors working for the special counsel. So when she went in, she was asked to talk about this recording. Mm -hmm. And multiple other witnesses were also asked to talk about this recording. And we also learned today that Trump was actually subpoenaed for this recording himself.
3: And Mark Milley has been interviewed because of this. Let me just read this a little bit. Um, And this is the CNN reporting. And I know that The Guardian has also matched the reporting. But here it is. The meeting in which Trump discussed the Iran document with others happened shortly after the New York published a story by Susan Glasser detailing how, in the final days of Trump's presidency, Milley instructed the Joint Chiefs of Staff to ensure Trump issued no illegal orders and that he he be informed if there was any concern. The story infuriated Trump. Glasser reported that in the months following the election, Milley repeatedly argued against striking Iran and was concerned that Trump might set in motion a full-scale conflict that was not justified. Milley and others talked Trump out of taking such drastic action, according to The New Yorker story. And so I want to go to you really quickly, um, David K. Johnston, because the story, as it plays out, is that Trump is bragging that Milley had a plan to attack Iran in these conversations. And then he starts waving around paper, and you can hear sort of paper rustling on these recordings, and says, if I could show you these class- these documents, it would prove that Milley is not telling the truth when he says he had no such intention of uh, planning an attack on Iran. So that is sort of the staging of all of this. Talk a little bit about Donald Trump. Is it plausible in your mind that the thing he's waving around is the real classified documents that he pinched from Mar-a-Lago, having pinched them from the White House, or that he's just, you know, profiling, you know, for trying to have swagger, but that it's not the documents?
6: Well, Joy, this would be classic Donald. Ooh, look what I have. Uh, And he's done this with photographs and other evidence to people over the years. In the case of General Milley, it's quite clear that General Milley would not be in favor of attacking Iran. But guess what? If the commander in chief says we want a battle plan, the Pentagon will cook you up a battle plan. That doesn't mean you're advocating it. It means you're following an order to present a plan. And understand that the Pentagon does war game exercises all the time. Sometimes they do these war game exercises with uh, Hollywood directors and screenwriters. And frankly, I wouldn't be shocked, knowing some of the war games materials I've read, if the Pentagon had done things like imagined a war between uh, Chile and uh, Argentina, Uh, as one of these exercises. So it's meaningless that he had a document that uh, laid it out. But did he have a real document that he shouldn't have? Yeah. What we know of the tape, which no no journalists or prosecutors outside the office have heard, uh, what we know of the tape suggests very strongly that, yeah, he had the real deal there. And long ago, I said that Donald wouldn't know how to understand a lot of classified documents But Donald knows value and he
3: knows what something is worth. And that would be a motivation for having it. Let me play what Andrew Weissman, former federal prosecutor, said earlier um, with uh, my friend Nicole Wallace.
7: If this reporting is true, and I'm trying not to use hyperbole, this is game over. Um, There's no way that he will not be charged. Um, One, it's a tape recording. Um, even though the reporting is there are also witnesses. So there could be tape recording with the witnesses. It involves not just possession of classified information, but dissemination of classified information. That puts it into a completely different ballpark when you are at the Department of Justice examining the seriousness of the violation and whether to bring charges. It is hard to see how, given all of the evidence that we've been talking about, um, that
3: there will not be a conviction here. Glenn Kirshner, former federal prosecutor, do you concur?
8: I do. And let me build on what Andrew said. I see this um, reporting as sort of an incriminating information twofer from a trial prosecutor's perspective. First of all, it may be further evidence that Donald Trump mishandled national defense information. Remember, that's one of the charges that served as the basis for the Mar-a-Lago search warrant. That falls under the Espionage Act. That ain't no small potatoes. So that is incriminating information, you know, number one. But the other thing that Donald Trump does not realize and will never realize is it may feel good in the moment when he says this stuff to those faux news networks or at his campaign rallies or town halls or he posts things on his social media platform saying I can declassify things with my mind. They are automatically declassified when I take them from the White House What a trial court prosecutor will do, Joy, is they will play that recording of Donald Trump for a jury. They will immediately follow it up with a recording of Donald Trump saying, I can't show you this because it is classified even though I took it from the White House six months ago. This is evidentiary gold. Um, This is the kind of thing that persuades a jury when you can prove the crimes with the defendant's own words in two conflicting audio recordings. And I have long said, Joy, and we've talked about this, these cases will try themselves Once federal charges are brought, the problem is, and the sticking point is, they won't indict themselves. And we are Mm. still here waiting for a federal indictment.
5: Yeah, indeed. Hugo. Well, I was just going to say, and and Glenn, Glenn touched on it, but we don't have evidence yet, or we may never get evidence that Trump disseminated these documents. I think that's important because Section 793 of the Espionage Act has has two points. There is the dissemination part, and there is retention. So far, we've only got up to retention, at least with respect to this recording, and it's not clear if that alone is sufficient to charge. If there is evidence that he was showing classified documents, then it really is game over.
3: And Glenn, follow up on that, because the, the question is, is taking the documents to Bedminster, um, we know there's some obstruction issues with refusing to give them back when they're asked for. This takes place before they then send documents back. We do know there have been conversations with staffers about, hey, how do the security cameras here work at mar lago So we see some obstruction issues. But if he then took those documents to Bedminster and didn't actually physically show it to someone, but sort of mimic doing it, does that get you close enough to dissemination?
8: The only person who can definitively answer that. Is a jury once they're presented with all the evidence. But I agree with Hugo's point. The, the espionage act, um, the, you know, mishandling of national defense information is probably less strong than the wrongfully removing government documents, which was one of the charges that served as the basis for the search warrant at Mar-a-Lago and the obstruction of justice joy, which is a lay down winner because after they were subpoenaed by the grand jury as part of a criminal investigation, Donald Trump unlawfully continue to conceal them. So, you know, only a jury can answer that question. But you know what? If you have two blockbuster charges, including obstruction, which is a 20-year max, I would be okay with uh, the special counsel deciding to forego bringing an espionage charge, because you can only confine a man for but one life.
3: Um, Let me go to you, David. Um, There is the— The statements from the Trump lawyers have all been very—there's no evidence that he did anything deliberate. We have seen absolutely no indication that he knowingly possessed any of the documents. This feels like this deeply undercuts that. Uh, They're now screaming about the leaks, but they're not really saying he didn't do it. How nervous do you think Trump and his people might be tonight?
6: Well, clearly, a number of his lawyers are very nervous, particularly because of the crime-fraud exception. Uh, that's been applied to break the confidentiality between Donald and some of his lawyers. Uh, Donald has, uh, just makes up his own reality. He creates his own reality. So he throws all sorts of stuff out there. Um, it, when this gets to trial, my expectation is that there will be an effort to confuse the jury, to spread chaos, because Donald is masterful at taking crystal clear waters and muddying them. And that's what they're going to focus on, I suspect, if, if and when we get to a trial. Just, to, you know, the jury, it's too hard to understand. There's all these conflicts here. Uh, and skilled prosecutors know how to get through that, but it will not be terribly easy to do. But they're going to be very worried.
3: I will, I will note that you said when, not if uh, this ever comes to trial. Glenn Kirshner, Hugo Lowell, David K. Johnston, thank you all very much. Up next on The Readout, the House is about to vote on a debt ceiling deal that is drawing fire from the right and from the left. The Readout continues after this.
9: and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org slash future. That's PlannedParenthood.org slash future.
3: We are just over an hour away from a critical vote with the U.S. economy on the line. The House representatives will vote on the debt limit deal hashed out by President Biden and Speaker Kevin McCarthy. Both Biden and McCarthy have expressed confidence that the deal, which would suspend the nation's debt limit until 2025, has the votes needed to pass the House, even as the hard-right Freedom Caucus and some progressives say they will oppose it.
0: I think that Democrats and Republicans are all going to fleece the American people. Does this represent a new coalition and a new trajectory where uh, the speaker is going to go to the Democrats more and more my beef is that you cut a deal
1: that shouldn't have been cut
4: this is not our deal this is a right wing center right deal and if we want to have credibility with the progressive wing of
9: the party then we need to be able to show that we're fighting for them i think republicans need to own this vote this was their deal this was their negotiations but kevin mccarthy needs to put up his votes and if he needs mine he can come get it and he can come negotiate some things away
3: McCarthy will need Democratic votes to get the deal passed, since more than two dozen Republicans voted against the rule setting it up for tonight's final vote. If it passes tonight, it goes to the Senate ahead of a looming June 5th default deadline. Joining me now is my friend and colleague Lawrence O'Donnell, host of The Last Word on MSNBC. Hey, Lawrence. Um, So— I do want to talk about that. Those two groups of people who have said their hard nose and and I, I learned from you, I listened to you, and I watched the last word. There are allowable no votes. Like you can send a message with a vote as long as your vote isn't dispositive. So when the progressives say they're not voting for it, it's because their message is we shouldn't have even been negotiating with these people. And on the right, they weren't going to vote for it anyway. <laughs> it's yeah. all just messaging, right? Yeah. Is that a good yeah. way? Yeah.
0: So at? on the Democratic side, uh, every. Democrat in the House of Representatives wants this bill to pass. They do not all have to vote for it for that to happen. Every Republican, including Chip Roy, actually wants this thing to pass. They want to get this dead cat off their doorstep uh, because they don't know what else to do. You notice that they don't suggest any alternative to it. You know, on either side, by the way, the Democrats who say they don't like it, Republicans who say they don't like it, no alternative. And these Republicans who were going to fire Kevin McCarthy the second he did something they don't like, not one of them is making the slightest whimper about Firing Kevin McCarthy, which each individual one of them is capable of doing only takes one of them to call for a vote on Kevin McCarthy's speakership. They aren't doing it because this is the only possible solution to this uh situation that we're in right now and it was masterfully negotiated by Joe Biden. The Republicans are correct that that Kevin McCarthy got next to nothing. He got some <laughs> tiny little things in this which Joe Biden and the and the the administration will be capable of adjusting in their favor after the bill is passed. You know, for example, uh, work requirements on this very small group uh, of people who will be getting food assistance. Mm -hmm. A work requirement is administered by the Biden administration. They can decide whether you have met the work requirement by trying, uh, or they can make the decision that you're not capable of working. We understand that the work requirement doesn't apply to you. So administering this work requirement is not up to the Republicans. It's going to be up to the Biden administration. Uh, And they've expanded in the process the number of people who will actually end up getting uh, food support. So, So the Biden side of it really has done a remarkable, just an amazing job in this negotiation. And what People have to understand what the audience has to understand. And I know not everyone does is that at some point in this calendar year, Joe Biden had to negotiate with the Republican House about budget issues. If he right. didn't do it on the debt ceiling, he was gonna have to do it in September. And in September, there would be the threat of a government shutdown if they didn't reach an agreement. This agreement eliminates the debt ceiling for two years and that it eliminates the possibility of a government shutdown over budget stuff uh, in September. So it, it's just astonishing what it does. As of tonight, as of tonight, Joy, the debt ceiling, the actual legislated debt ceiling of the United States of America is rounded off to uh, $31.4 dollars. It's actually thirty one trillion three hundred eighty one billion dollars. As of tonight, after this bill is signed, after the Republicans get this bill, the debt ceiling will be nothing, whatever. Yeah, it won't
3: exist. (laughs) It will be
0: gone. There will be none. It literally the sky's the limit. They didn't they didn't raise it. They eliminated it. They eliminated it for two full years. I mean, it's just I thought maybe Biden could get a six six month extension on the debt ceiling. A year maximum, to end up with two years to take him through the election, to take all the Democrats through the election, never have to think about it again on the Democratic side, is is astonishing.
3: It, it says to me that I, I feel like people do underestimate Joe Biden. You've talked about this before. He is a senator to his core. He understands how this process works. And, and, and I think people forget that that is where he came from. But you're absolutely Right. What Kevin McCarthy had to do, he had no choice, he can't crash the economy, is give away the issue of the the debt ceiling, the issue of the budget, all the way through the presidential campaign when his party's chair said she wanted a recession that it would be good for the Republicans. So explain to me in any way, because there are Democrats who are unhappy with it. People like Bernie Sanders. Is there unhappy with it mostly because they they did it at all?
0: There aren't any Democrats unhappy with this. There's (laughs) there's a mandatory kind of acting process that's necessary here. And it is very important for Democrats to speak out against this, because if they if they declare it to be the victory that it actually is, uh, it it can blur people's understanding of what policies they care about. So, yes, there are Democrats who are very much opposed to some of the policies in this this bill. But every one of them, if their vote was necessary, would vote vote for it. They absolutely would vote for it. Uh, But but so what what they need to do, though, is make the make the kind of points to Republicans. Bernie Sanders is really speaking to Republicans on the Hill. He's really speaking to them saying, here's what you won't be able to do with me in the future. That's what these are about. All the statements made now uh, by the progressive caucus members in that are statements about what they won't be willing to do in the future. And they need to make Republicans understand that they're still here. And it's only because this is a debt ceiling uh, that this is going through. That's all totally legitimate. But none of them would actually oppose this bill if it came down to their vote.
3: And last question, why not make this the status quo permanent? Because no sane country that is of our equivalent economy has a debt limit. Can Democrats find a way to keep this status that is going to go through January of 2025 beyond that and take this hostage away from. So,
0: So the reason they don't want to do it, the reason they don't want to go out on the Senate floor, they'd have to have control of the Senate, control of the House. Okay, go out and simply repeal A debt ceiling. We no longer have it as a law. It's gone. The debate that they would go through on the Senate floor, where it would be amendable and it would be subject to a 60 vote threshold and all of that, it would go on forever. They'd be accused of trying to, of just being, you know, crazy lunatics with the (laughs) debt. And, and they wouldn't win the public debate over it. Conceptually, it makes perfect sense. But you'd need, you'd need 60 votes in the Senate to do it. So, um, we're not going to see it happen.
3: Oh, I could I can dream though, Lawrence. Uh, Lawrence O'Donnell. (laughs) I can can dream. Lawrence O'Donnell, thank you so much. Be sure to join Lawrence tonight on the last word at 10 p.m. Eastern, right here on MSNBC. It is always must see TV. Thank you, Lawrence. Thanks, Joe. And coming up, Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton faces impeachment as his colleagues try to seize control over elections in one of the bluest counties in the state. We'll be right back. Over Memorial Day weekend, Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton was impeached by an overwhelming majority of Democrats and his fellow Republicans. He now has the special honor of being just the third state official in Texas history and the first in a half century to be temporarily removed from office. Paxton is no stranger to corruption. One could argue it's sort of his thing. He's been under investigation in one form or another for nearly a decade. The 20 articles of impeachment include breathtaking charges of abuse of office, adultery, bribery, and unethical behavior. He is set to stand trial in the state Senate, where Republicans outnumber Democrats 19 to 12. And let's not get it twisted. Texas Republicans voted to impeach not because they've had some come-to-Jesus-about-good-governance. They did it because they were annoyed that Paxton got caught and was trying to make Texas taxpayers pay for his $3 million mistake. Right on cue, Donald Trump rode to Paxton's rescue, attacking state Republicans for impeaching him. Paxton and Trump have had a symbiotic relationship. Back in 2020, Paxton sued to challenge the results in Georgia, Pennsylvania, Michigan, and Wisconsin. Before that, he successfully sued the state's most populist county, Harris County, which happens to be heavily Democratic, to prevent them from using universal mail-in ballots. And he was pretty proud of it. We had 12
9: losses
8: that we had to win. And if we had lost one of them, like we lost Harris County. Trump won by 620,000 votes in Texas. Harris County mail-in ballots that they wanted to send out were 2.5 million. Those were all illegal, and we were able to stop every one of them. Had we not done that, we would have been in the very same situation. We would have been on election night. I was watching election night, and I knew when I saw what was happening in these other states, that that would have been Texas. We would have been in the same boat. We would have been one of those battleground states, that they were counting votes in Harris County
2: for three days, and Donald Trump would have lost the election.
3: While Texas House Republicans impeach that guy, they continue to target Democratic counties in the state. Governor Abbott is expected to sign several bills into law that would, among other things, allow the Secretary of State, who was handpicked by the governor, to redo any election in Harris County. Joining me now is Matthew Dowd, MSNBC political analyst and former candidate for lieutenant governor of Texas. Texas Congresswoman Sheila Jackson Lee will be joining us in a moment. But I do want to start with you, Matthew, because this revelation, uh, this braggadocio by Greg Abbott, the corrupt uh, and indicted um, and now impeached attorney general of Texas, it actually answered a question for me. Why is Texas, which has a majority-minority population, so, so red? Harris County— is 4.6 million of the state's 29 million people. It's the largest county by far. Dallas County, the next largest county, is about 2.6 million people. If you control it and suppress its votes, voila, Republicans can't lose statewide. Your thoughts?
7: Well, Texas, I mean, it's just one of many instances where they've made Texas one of the I think it's the hardest state to vote in in the in the country when you combine registration with that. That wasn't the case twenty five years ago before Republicans mm-hmm. took power. Texas used to be the fourteenth ranked state in ease of voting, and now it's fiftieth in the ease of voting. All of this has to do with the changing nature of Texas. And I'll give you one interesting fact: between the nineteen between the twenty twenty census and, and between the twenty ten census and the twenty twenty census, Texas added four million people. Four million people were added in Texas. Ninety five percent of the people that were added were non-white. Ninety five percent of the increased population was Hispanic, black and Asian in Texas. They understand demographics. And so instead of doing I mean, what's amazing about what Ken Paxton said, which is I want to make it harder for people to vote. That's basically what he said. I don't want to make give the people the opportunity to vote. I want to make it hard. That is the case in Texas and other states, as you know, because we've had this conversation. They can't win. An election that looks like Texas Republican. If the election election day looked like Texas, they can't win. They could appeal to you know people of not non white Texans. They don't want to, and right. so what do they do? Make they they rig the system so the election doesn't look like Texas.
3: I mean, and just down to the fact that Texas—we counted it up today. They had, they have, like, over 200 different districts, some as small as 89 people in some of these rural districts. And then you've got these three or four giant districts that have a million or more people that are the more blue-tinged districts. That is how you construct a state where you make most of the districts these tiny little rural districts. Let's just look at Harris County. Statewide, Trump versus Biden— Statewide, it was tight. 5.9 million for Trump, 5.2 million for Biden. But in Harris County, Biden beat Trump. 900, 700,000. Go back to 2016. It's also close. 4.6 million statewide to 3.8. I think people don't understand. That's not a huge margin. You know, Democrats are pretty competitive, but in Harris County, the Democrats win. They are now attempting to dissolve the Harris County Election Administration. This is the Republicans who impeached Paxton, not Paxton himself. Empower the Secretary of State to seize election authority from county officials, authorize a new election if there are good causes to recur- a recurring pattern of, prom- of problems. They can redo the election, pull Texas out of the Electronic Registration Information Center where you can get voting data, and increase the penalty for illegal voting from a misdemeanor to a felony. They are rigging this state, Matthew.
7: Well, you know, it's fascinating. as you know, I used to run campaigns in Texas back years ago. And it was common, you know, thought is Harris County, Houston is going to vote Republican. And so you figure out the margins you need there and then the margins you need in another place. Dallas County was the same way. Another county give me let me give you a prediction. The next legislative session, they're going to go after Dallas County. That'll be the next place they go. And what's happened is the changing nature of Texas is Harris County is now, from a red county to a blue county. Dallas County is from a red county to a blue county. And so what they're doing is sort of de, you know, de-emphasizing or, or or making it them give those counties, larger counties, less power in the state because if, right. if what they voted was equal to the rest of the counties, the small counties, Democrats would win. And on that data you showed from the 2020 election when 5.9 million voted for Trump and 5.2, 5.5 million Texans who were registered didn't vote. Five yeah. and a half. That's unregistered. Five and a half yeah. million Texans in the presidential election in 2020 were registered and did not vote. vote. That's the problem.
3: Let, let, speaking of Harris County, let me bring in uh, Democratic Congresswoman Sheila Jackson, Lee, who represents Harris County. Uh, you have hopefully been able to hear what we've been talking about, Congresswoman. How does that materially impact people in Harris County? That 4.6 million people are essentially disenfranchised, and the attorney general, the impeached attorney general of your state, is bragging about doing it.
10: It is a horror of proportions that one cannot imagine. And that means that all of the fight that was ever made in the civil rights movement and before the lives loss. Uh, the civil rights soldiers uh, gone to naught Uh, because here we are in 2023 with conspicuous denial of voting rights. Added to that on June 1st, the state will take over a duly elected school board for the Houston Independent School District. They will be thrown out and there will be an appointed board of managers that no one knows who they are. So from overturning our elections by one person the governor of the state of Texas, at his own will, by taking away our whole administrative infrastructure that the voters have voted on by voting on the public officials who designed it. We're basically extinguishing our constitutional rights to vote, because I believe the 15th Amendment gives us a framework for voting. And I certainly think the 13th Amendment indicated to African-Americans that they're no longer enslaved and they have the rights and privileges of a citizen of the United States. This includes, however, Hispanics, African-Americans, progressive uh, women, people who have differing views from the present state administration, various other ethnic groups. uh, And it denies, when you say Harris County, it denies Houston, which is the fourth largest city in the nation. It is unimaginable. And we are fearful of the potential of innocent infractions by hardworking volunteers, similar to uh, Georgia in the last election, being arrested or threatened with felonies For simple mistakes. I was there when the paper shortage came about. I was at a poll. There was no fraud. It was not malicious. It just happened that people were voting and it was not enough paper ballots. By the way, this was the first year that we used those paper ballots, which the state required us to use. And Harris County was the first one to be courageous enough to use it. So we were using it, but we ran out of paper and now we're being penalized. And that was the only issue that generated into this very, very, very infringing, threatening and frightening bill that is going to intimidate hardworking civic leaders who all they want to do is give people Mm -hmm. their right to vote. We're going to fight Uh, this for sure.
3: Absolutely. And we're going to stay on top of this because uh, the impeachment is is interesting, but it's the disenfranchisement and the bragging about disenfranchising people that we need to pay attention. This is anti-democracy. Congre- it's, it's apartheid. Uh, Enjoy. And, Congresswoman and taking Sheila away the elected Jackson.
10: board members of the school Indeed.
3: district as well. Indeed. Absolutely. We will stay on top of all of that. Congresswoman Sheila Jackson Lee from Harris County and Matthew Dowd, also a Texan. Thank you both For being here and still ahead. The Republican Party gleefully embraces authoritarianism as blue states shore up their defenses against escalating attacks on freedom and democracy. We're back after this. So far in Florida, Governor Ron DeSantis' time as a president, during Ron DeSantis' time as a presidential candidate, he has given very little indication of what he would do as president when it comes to the economy or foreign policy, other than, you know, shading Ukraine. Instead, it's been just a bunch of word salad where he says woke a lot. His only real campaign promise has been to de-santify America, if you will. Turn every state into Florida, whether you like it or not. And in some states where... We're already we're already starting to see that state of disunion come to pass over the weekend. Republican lawmakers in Texas followed in Florida's footsteps, passing a ban on DEI programs at state universities. Then you have Alabama Governor Kay Ivey, who yesterday signed a law banning transgender women from playing on female sports teams in college. Iowa Governor Kim Reynolds signed a law that bans any mention of gender identity or sexual orientation in schools and removes Any book that depicts sex from school libraries, with the exception of, wait for it, the Bible. But while this is all happening, you also have a large chunk of the country where states are doing the complete opposite. States with Democratic legislatures and governors that are actually getting a lot of progressive policies passed. Minnesota, for example, has just wrapped up its most transformative legislative session yet. Passing bills that would codify paid leave, increased funding for school lunches, tax credits for low-income families, and affordable housing. In Michigan, Governor Gretchen Whitmer just signed a major red flag gun bill into law. And this week, Illinois is set to become the first state in the country to actually ban book bans. Another state that's seen a lot of progress is Maryland, where Governor Wes Moore has signed progressive laws on abortion, gender affirming care and gun reform, just to name a few. And joining me now is Governor Wes Moore of Maryland. Uh, I now get to officially congratulate you many months later on becoming uh, the first black governor of Maryland. Um, It was a big win, I think, for progressives. It was historic. And I want to let you just talk about how you all have gotten off the ground running, because we're seeing— a style of governing in states like Florida that feels very punitive. Um, how do you see the job of governor and what are you trying to do?
2: I think one of the things we're doing here in Maryland is is we're not just moving fast. We're moving together and we're actually showing that progressive values are something that we're actually getting not just Democrats, but also even Republican support for where when uh, when when we say that we're not going to be a state that's going to force people to justify their humanity. That we are going to be a state that, is, that says that, that reproductive health and abortion care should be a decision between a, a, a woman and her doctor, and not politicians and judges, that we're able to actually get uh, support for these type of initiatives, initiatives across the board. When we say that we are going to be a state that is not going to pick fights with our largest employers, uh, and is not going to make the uh, people who are creating jobs make life more difficult for them, that we're getting support across the aisle for that. And so the thing I think we're seeing here with the state of Maryland is by being a state that can be more humane, by being a state that can actually lead with common sense and and depoliticize these issues, we're not only able to make progress, but we're able to get success and actually get buy-in from across party lines in order to make that progress happen.
3: Uh, you, you mentioned uh, going to war with uh, your biggest employer. Uh, I heard Disney in my mind, and so I'm just going to ask you about you. You have now Republican governors, not just DeSantis, but others, accusing Disney of sexualizing children, and it, no one really understands what they mean by that. I guess they mean you know saying somebody is gay, and the thing is sexualization. We don't know what they mean, but there are real cases of people who are sexualizing and abusing children. There was even a case here in Maryland. There was an archdiocese in Maryland. There's uh, you know we've had in Illinois a multi-year investigation to child sex abuse by members of the Catholic clergy, found at least 1,997 children across the state being sexually abused by more than 450 Catholic leaders. And here in your state, in Maryland, the state's attorney general accused Catholic church officials in Baltimore of engaging in a year-long cover-up of the sexual abuse of more than 600 kids, some of whom were preyed upon by multiple abusers over decades. So when people are talking about sexualizing children but not talking about these institutions that are supposed to be trusted by families, what do you make of that?
2: I think the the hypocrisy uh, is staggering and the silence on this issue has on this issue has been deafening. Uh, You know, these allegations that we have seen here in the state of Maryland and across the country, they are horrific Uh, and, 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 and they are they are just they're they're gruesome. When you consider the impact that it's had, and it's the reason why I'm proud of the fact that Maryland led uh, and that I proudly signed a bill this year in our General Assembly that ensured that there was not going to be a statute of limitations for, for victims who were going to claim and make claims against people who have victimized them. And I signed that bill proudly because I said there's no statute of limitations on the pain the victims are feeling. That when Look, we're when we are watching harm done to a child, that child is going to feel that for the remainder of their life. And so there cannot be a statute of liber- a limitations on the ability to go make a claim on this when we know that the statute, there is no statute of limitation on the pain that that victim is feeling.
3: Yeah. And I don't think drag shows and Disney are, are, are harming children. This is what's harming children. Let's talk guns. That's for a exactly moment. right. Um, let's talk guns, uh, because, you know, obviously there are parts of Maryland where there are a lot of challenges, places like Baltimore. Um, have you had pushback on the idea? You know, Maryland actually has very sane gun laws. You know, you actually need a permit and you need like a lot of permitting and you need instruction. Have you gotten pushback from Republicans on it and um, on trying to actually have this state be more sane when it comes to guns and gun violence?
2: I, I've been very clear here in the state of Maryland. Uh, there is an issue with violence that we have. And again, it's not just in the state of Maryland, but we see the issue of violence around the country. And, and part of the part of both the cause and the concern of that is just been accessibility to firearms. And it's the reason why we've been very aggressive to be able to not just put together funding, but laws that are going after illegal guns and getting these illegal guns out of our communities and out of our streets. But also, I know that there is no reason for someone under the age of 21 to be able to purchase a firearm, that we need to be more aggressive about if you have a person with a with a history of mental illness and a history of violence, that they should not be able to purchase a weapon. And yes, there is no reason for someone to be able to bring a firearm into a nursery or into a government building or into a school. These are common sense gun laws that uh, that we that we push for, that I proudly signed. And, and while there has been, uh, and, and even if people want to push back on me, I want to let them know I will not blink on this. And I'm not flinching because I refuse to be a governor who's going to spend my entire time going to funerals. And I refuse to be a governor who's going to spend my entire time giving thoughts and prayers and not passing a single piece of legislation to actually make people safe. These are common sense gun laws that we pass here in the state of Maryland. And I think the thing that we're seeing is how other states are watching what we're doing in the state of Maryland and are also uh, and also now following suit.
3: And I will note that Maryland uh, is one of the safest states in the country. It ranks in the bottom tier in terms of the number of uh, gun violence incidents, uh, unlike some other uh, states that uh, might not be so blue. Uh, Maryland Governor Westmore, congratulations again. Thank you very much. And uh, come back if you ever announce anything in 2028 that might be of interest to the national audience, uh, you know, (laughs) if you want to think about that. I mean, people talk about it, I will man. I so, You know people talk about it, right? Okay. <laughs> I'll leave it there. Thank you, Governor Moore.
2: <laughs> it's so good to be with you always. <laughs> oh, I thought
3: you. I, I thought you were about to announce. Okay, never mind. Okay, thank you. We'll be right back. <laughs> oh, no. That's tonight's readout.